The current sermon series is Keys to uh, Spiritual Growth, and if you have uh, been involved in the series, the uh, last lesson that we looked at was on the individual Christian's battle with temptation and how to conquer temptation. Now, today's lesson, Lesson 9, is on spiritual warfare, which we will address not so much from the individual Christian's perspective, but how Satan attacks the church and how we can overcome those attacks. I believe it's important to realize that apart from God himself, there is nothing that Satan hates more than the church because the church is God's instrument to extend God's presence on the earth, to express God's character, to execute God's will. Uh, The church is the very body of Christ to walk as he walked to complete the mission he began in spreading the gospel uh, to bring salvation to peoples from all nations and all people groups. Therefore, Satan will do anything to destroy the church, or at least render the church ineffective in completing the mission God has given us by either distorting the gospel of Christ or distracting the church from the priority of spreading, sharing the gospel. Uh, The Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 6 verse 12, for our fight is not against any physical enemy, It is against organizations and powers that are spiritual. We are up against the unseen power that controls this dark world and the spiritual agents from the very headquarters of evil. So I want us to begin by just gaining a better understanding of our enemy. There are two primary passages in the Old Testament which describes uh, Satan's origin. Uh, The first is Ezekiel chapter 28, where God pronounces judgment on the leader of the city of Tyre. But then, beginning at verse 12, God begins to address the spiritual power behind that earthly leader, which he calls the king of Tyre. And, of course, it's a reference to none other than Satan himself. The second Old Testament passage concerning Satan is Isaiah chapter 14. Uh, verses 12 through 17, which gives us insight into the ambitions, the objectives, the goals of the devil. Now, I'm not going to have the time uh, to give a detailed study of these two passages. I simply want to give you an overview of the key truths that we learn about our enemy, that we learn about Satan. So please follow in your notes and uh, look first at the original perfection of Satan, as he was originally created by God. And uh, just look at a few key phrases uh, from this Ezekiel 28 passage that describes him. Uh, you'll notice that first phrase, it says that he was the anointed cherub who covers. The word anointed means to be what? Set apart for a special task. Cherub was a, is a very special high order of angels who are positioned at the footstool 
of God's throne to lead the worship of God. And those two words, who covers, that literally in the Hebrew text means who leads. So when you put that together, as you see there in your notes, we discover that Satan was originally created by God, and he was created to be head over the entire angelic realm. His original name we know was Lucifer. We gained that from the Isaiah 14 passage. And Lucifer means shining one. Uh, look at that next phrase describing him as he was originally created by God. It says that he had the seal of perfection, full of wisdom, and perfect in beauty. Now think about that. Only God possessed a greater wisdom or beauty than Lucifer possessed. And that's going to come into play when we see his fall. Uh, and then look at the next phrase. Every precious stone was your covering, referring to precious gems. And of course, we know that a gem's beauty, a precious stone's beauty, lies in its ability, what? To reflect light. So Lucifer was originally created with a greater capacity to reflect the glory of God than any other created being. And then the next little phrase, the workmanship of your settings and sockets. Uh, in other words, Lucifer was created like a built-in pipe organ uh, to be a doxology of praise as he led heaven's worship of God. And then that last phrase there, you were blameless in your ways from the day you were created until unrighteousness was found in you. So bottom line, Lucifer was the greatest being ever created, unequaled in strength, unequaled in wisdom, beauty, and authority. We can uh, better understand Martin Luther's uh, words in his great hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God, when he said, For still our ancient foe doth seek to work us woe. His craft and power are great, and armed with cruel hate, on earth is not his equal. But look with me now at the perversion of Satan. Uh, how did things go wrong? And we see that phrase in verse 17 of Ezekiel 28. Your heart was lifted up because of your beauty. You corrupted your wisdom by reason of your splendor. And there's so much that could be said here, and there are other verses that could be highlighted, but we can make this very simple. Problem was... Satan spent too much time, or Lucifer spent too much time, apparently behind a mirror. And he got stuck on himself. And he got to the place, and he said, wait a minute. Someone as beautiful as I am? Someone as wise as I am? Someone is as powerful as I I should be being worshipped. I shouldn't have to worship another. And pride came into his heart. And with that pride and unrighteousness... And then I mentioned there the Revelation 12 passage where we learn that Satan then led a rebellion against God, trying to literally overthrow God. We also know from the Revelation 12 passage that one-third of the angelic realm sided with the devil in that rebellion. And of course, uh, they lost that war, and the Scripture tells us they were cast from heaven uh, onto uh, the earth. So pride was the original sin. Pride was the original sin uh, in the universe itself. Now, look at the plan of Satan. And we discover his plan in the Isaiah 14 passage 
which contains what is known as the five I will statements of Satan. Or you could say this is his declaration of war against God. And here they are. First one is, I will ascend to heaven. And basically what he's saying there, I will sit on heaven's throne. I'm going to remove God and I'm going to assume that uh, place of supreme power and authority in the universe. When he, the second I will statement, I will raise my throne above, above the stars of heaven. Stars, a reference to the angelic realm. So he's saying here, I'm going to rule over the entire angelic realm. Not those who just sided with me. And by, by the way... The third of that angelic realm that sided with the devil in his rebellion, they are what we know as what today? Demons. Uh, those are those that uh, assist the devil in his work, those spiritual uh, uh, powers. And then he said, I will sit on the mount of the assembly. And that's a reference to the city of Jerusalem. And by that he's saying, I'm not only going to sit on heaven's throne, I'm not only going to rule over the angelic realm, but I'm going to rule planet earth. And I'm going to take uh, control of earth. And then he says, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. That's a reference to God's glory. And so there he's saying, I'm going to achieve a greater glory than God. I'm going to rise above God in, in greatness and in power and beauty, wisdom and splendor. And then the last I will statement, I will make myself like the Most High. And what he means by that is not like God in terms of character, but like God in terms of authority and power. In other words, he's saying, I want to gain, like God has right now, absolute authority over all, where I'm independent of any other authority and all have to bow the knee to me and comply to my desires, to my wishes, and to my will. Now, look at the next statement in your notes, and we're not going to get very far today, but uh, we'll at least uh, dabble into this, and then we'll pick it up next week. Uh, Satan disguises himself. Here's how he attacks the church. He disguises himself as a shepherd of God's flock to deceive and divide the church and render her ineffective in advancing the gospel of Christ. That's what we need to understand about the devil's primary tactic in attacking the church. He disguises himself. He disguises himself as a true shepherd of God's flock in order to be in a position to deceive and divide the church and render the church ineffective in advancing the gospel of Christ. Now, let's, we'll probably just have time to... Uh, Go over those uh, verses that you see right there. The Matthew 7, Acts 20, 2 Corinthians 11, 2 Peter 2. You can follow in your Bibles or you can just listen to me. The reference are there and then reflect on them later. But Matthew 7, verse 15. Matthew 7, verse 15. Jesus said, beware. Beware of what? Of the false prophets who come to you. Listen now. Who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. Now that word beware is a very interesting word in the Greek text. It literally means, it literally means to hold the mind away from. That's what that word literally means, to hold your mind away from. Jesus is saying false shepherds are so dangerous, you should never expose yourself to their teachings, never. 
And why are false shepherds so dangerous? Because like wolves, they have one objective. And what is that one objective? To devour sheep. And in this case, the sheep of God's pasture, uh, the sheep of God's flock. But the most important truth that you need to see in this verse, which Jesus spoke, is the subtlety of false shepherds. Jesus likened them to what? Wolves in sheep's clothing. Now, many when, when people hear that, uh, they, they often picture a wolf impersonating a sheep so he can move undetected uh, within the flock uh, to do his deadly work. But that is, that's the wrong picture. That's not what Jesus is saying. When Jesus refers to sheep's clothing, he's referring to the wool clothing a shepherd wore. And what better way to mislead and destroy the flock than to impersonate the trusted shepherd. And this is why Jesus called them ravenous wolves. That word ravenous in the Greek is the word harpox. And it literally means swindler or extortioner. In other words, the motive of a false shepherd is to gain the trust of God's flock. Not to feed the sheep, not to protect the sheep, but like the true shepherd, but what? To devour the sheep. Now, in Acts chapter 20, verses 28 and 30, uh, the Apostle Paul warned the church leaders uh, in the church of Ephesus this way. He's, uh, he's been with them for a, a long period of time, uh, building the church, growing the church. Now he's about to leave. This is his farewell address to them. And notice the last thing that he leaves with them. He says, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock among whom the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God which he purchased with his own blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. Paul is simply repeating the warning Jesus gave about false shepherds. Paul calls them savage wolves who will not spare God's flock. He also says they speak perverse things. And that's an important little phrase. Uh, in the context, it literally means that they will distort or they will twist God's truth to achieve their perverted ends. In other words, the goal of a false shepherd is never to teach truth, but to seduce God's people. Now, he'll use God's truth, he'll distort it, he'll twist it, but his motive is one in which to seduce God's people, to be able to take advantage of them. And please do not miss the warning that these false shepherds will arise, what, among the church leaders themselves. In other words, false shepherds, listen to this now, false shepherds are not made outside Christianity, but inside it. False shepherds name the name of Jesus. They teach from the Bible. They gain positions of power and prestige. And herein lies the subtlety of false shepherds. They appear to be the real deal, but they are counterfeits. 
counterfeits. Listen to what Paul wrote to the church at Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 11. He says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, for I betrothed you to one husband, that to Christ, that I might present you as a pure virgin. But I am afraid, lest as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds, they were back to minds, them twisting, distorting truth to lead people astray, those perverse things. He says, your mind should be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. For if one comes and preaches another Jesus, notice, they're calling on the name of Jesus, they're preaching Jesus, but it's another Jesus. Not the historical Jesus as presented in the Scriptures. He says, or if you receive a different spirit from which you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you bear this beautifully. This is actually a rebuke on the church at Corinth, because uh, the false teachers had already infiltrated the church. And Paul just couldn't understand how gullible they were and how they had brought them in and, and given them a, 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 a hearing and a place. And they were uh, stealing away and uh, many of the folks there and creating great havoc. And then in verses 13 and 15, Paul writes this, But such men, listen now, are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder... For even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end shall be according to their deeds. You know, we talked about this a little bit last week. Satan is at his best, not operating in the realm of darkness, but operating in the realm of light. He's at his best, not operating in the gutters of this world, but in the church, that's where he's at his best as he transforms himself into an angel of light as his servants are disguised as apostles of Christ, as servants of righteousness to get a foothold, to distort the gospel, to divide the church, to create havoc, to render us ineffective. And then Peter, the apostle Peter, also warned about false shepherds who disguise themselves as apostles of Christ and servants of righteousness. Listen to 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 and 2. He says, there will be false teachers among you. Notice, there will be, period. It's going to happen. You're going to have to deal with this. Who will secretly introduce destructive heresies, even denying the master who bought them, bringing swift destruction upon themselves, and many... Sadly, many, he's talking about within the church, many will follow their sensuality, and because of them, the way of truth will be maligned. Notice, Peter says they will secretly introduce what? Destructive heresies into the church. The words secretly introduce literally means to smuggle in. That's what that word, that's what those words, to smuggle in. Well, what do they smuggle into the church? Destructive heresies, which is referring to error that produces division. And how do they do this? They smuggle in the error with the truth. They are masters at mixing truth and error. 
at twisting, distorting God's word. The false shepherds claim to follow God's word, but they twist it and they make bold promises. Their their message always goes something like this. You know, you you don't want to miss everything that God has for you, do you? I mean, you want God's full blessing in your life. And so, you know, I have something uh, that, that you need. You know, bless your church leaders. Uh, bless these other folks. They're well-meaning people, and they've, they've got a corner on the truth, but they're, they're missing the full blessing. And so you need, you need to go with me to know that all, all that God has for you. And if you don't, you're going to miss out. Uh, it can be very appealing. It can be very attractive. And sadly, many will go with the false shepherd, leaving behind splintered and divided churches. And then those who follow after the false shepherd, and we'll see this more next week, they generally end up with a disillusion in their faith, shipwrecked in their faith, God's truth being maligned, and the cause of Christ suffering. And then also notice that Peter describes these false shepherds as denying the master who bought them. The word denying is an interesting word. It's arneomai in the Greek, and it, it literally, it just simply means to say no to. To say no to. And it's in the present tense, which means that it's an habitual practice. It's a habitual pattern of saying no. So who do these false teachers say no to? To the master who bought them. Now listen, publicly they confess Christ, but privately they deny him. In front of the crowds, in front of the congregation, in front of the TV cameras, you will think they are the greatest saints, but when the lights are off, they live scandalous lives. They build a positive public image, often a very big successful ministry, but they are bankrupt of private integrity. And this is why Paul wrote in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 5, they will maintain a facade of religion, but their life denies the truth. Keep clear of people like that. Now, we probably need to end right there. I could go a bit further, but that's a good stopping off point. And uh, next week, we'll begin to look at some of the characteristics of these false shepherds that make them so effective, that enable them to be so successful in deceiving people, even within uh, the the church. And hopefully, we'll learn uh, their tricks and not be uh, deceived uh, by them. But you know, it's, I think it's very, very appropriate as we move to our invitation, uh, this being Memorial Day, that you know, we've been looking at false shepherds, but praise God, there is a true shepherd, amen? And we're talking about the Lord Jesus Christ. And let me just read uh, a couple of verses in John chapter 10 that contrast uh, the devil over against the uh, true shepherd. It says, the thief, referring to the devil, referring to Satan, comes only to what? steal and kill and destroy. But Jesus, I came that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd, what? Lays down his life for the sheep. So as we move to invitation, I know this has been a little uh, different uh, message today as we're just introducing this subject of spiritual warfare. But again, I just want to highlight the fact that Jesus is the good shepherd. He's the great shepherd who laid down his life for you to forgive you of your sins and to give you a new beginning.
to let you know His empowerment in your life as you would invite Him in to forgive you of your sins and take control of your life. And, of course, that would be our appeal to you if you do not know Jesus as your Lord and Savior, that you would see His great love for you and that you would see that He is the true shepherd and that He only wants to lead you along a path of righteousness and true joy and peace and fulfillment. And, of course, it would be our encouragement today that you would put your trust in Jesus as you would turn from your sin, turn from running your own life to what? Follow the Good Shepherd as you would embrace Him as your Savior and Lord, the one who died to forgive you of your sins and to give you the gift of eternal life. And then, believers, this is a wonderful opportunity for us just to renew uh, our commitment to follow our shepherd and to not be become gullible and easily deceived and tricked. So you may just want to uh, say a quick prayer that as we go forward in this study on spiritual warfare, God teach me, uh, instruct my heart that I would not be one of those victims uh, to a false shepherd, but that I would stay true to you and true to your truth. Uh, possibly you're here and God is leading you to unite with this church family. We would invite you to come and Make that desire known, and it would be our joy to uh, receive you and uh, welcome you into this church family. So please stand as the invitation is extended, and you just be obedient to what God has spoken to your heart.